Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the December issue, Michael Robbins considers humanity's recurrent obsession with the end of the world. From Nostradamus and millenarian cults to contemporary fears about nuclear war and climate change. But whether you're anticipating the return of Odin or Jesus or for global temperatures to make most of the planet uninhabitable, the underlying belief remains the same. There's something wrong with the way things are now, and there'll be a justified end. I spoke with Robbins about his own interest in the apocalypse, first sparked in his youth by metal, as well as Giovanni Arrighi's concept of systemic chaos, Walter Benjamin, and how the left could benefit from adopting a less antagonistic view towards religious faith. I really enjoyed this essay for a lot of reasons, but I think part of it has to do with the fact that I also was raised by a very fervent atheist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like having that shared experience, and it's very rare to hear people talk about it, especially when it's this very like dickheaded, like Richard Dawkins kind of like there's no man with a beard in the, cl- in, the in the clouds, you know, this very like not sensitive form of atheism. Right. So I mean, uh, you know, coming from that background, uh, it was interesting to learn that the revelation or, or you know have the revelation ha 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 that the rapture is actually not that biblically supported and that you know martin luther kind of hated it because you know america is a christian nation in the worst way possible a lot of the time and you know, evangelical christians want to put all the jews into israel so that the rapture can start like it's shaping this belief in the rapture is really shaping people's lives in this aggressive way. So it was such, it was so strange to learn that this is actually really not that big of a deal in the Bible. So why did, why has it become such a big deal specifically for Americans? Cause there's, there's like millenarianism all over American history. Right. Well, the rapture is, is not in the Bible. There is simply no, there's no textual support for it, no scriptural support. Um, and it's certainly not in Revelation. Revelation doesn't mention this at all. It, it didn't even begin um, to be an, an idea among certain Christians until, uh, I believe, the 19th century. I, I would have to look that up for sure. But, you know, I don't... <laughs> I don't know why this this particular myth took hold. It isn't out of keeping with American Christianity, let's say. Like you to to invent a doctrine that is not found uh it is in historic Christianity and claim that you know that is the the singular event that is going to define the um the ultimate dispensation of souls is it's very american you know you said that america is a christian nation i don't regard it as one i talked to to the theologian david bentley hart about this recently on his show um or his uh substack and um to, to go back to a line i quote in the essay frederick Douglass said you know frederick Douglass asked a hard question he said you guys are this is a christian nation and yet um my my brothers and and my my sisters are are kept in bondage by you, and that seems to that's that's a difficult um, 
those are difficult truths to reconcile. So he, so his solution was the obvious one, which is that there, there's the Christianity of this land, as he called it, and the Christianity of Christ. And he drew the, a, a very sharp distinction between them. Um, so when I say America is not a Christian nation, I mean that it has very little in common with with uh, primitive Christianity, uh, you know, with the, with the Gospels, with the Bible. There's, you know, it's a it's a relatively uncontroversial uh, doctrine. There are things in the Bible that 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 you can look at and and sort of figure out what it means to be a Christian. And as it happens, this this guy named Yeshua laid a bunch of them down. You're supposed to take care of the poor and the sick. You're supposed to welcome uh, strangers. Um, you're not supposed to have concern with wealth. I mean, does that sound like American Christians? <laughs> but they, but there's they 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 always find scriptural basis for these things. You know the way that you know. Uh, you know, for, for for example, there are no um, massive protests against adulterers, but there are massive protests against LGBTQ plus people, right? But it's like, well, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. There's this there's this one line in the Bible that says you should, you're not supposed to do this, and you're going to go to hell, and we're going to make this huge wedge issue out of it. Yeah, I don't. I guess I don't. I guess I don't see it as terribly complicated. Like people, some people use religion to dominate others and some people use uh i don't know um twitter to dominate others <laughs> i'm thinking of a particularly foolish person who's in the news at the moment and <laughs> some people use politics i mean there's there the, you can't look at the ideological justifications for domination and conclude necessarily conclude that the um that the principles on which these people allege uh, or, or claim to be acting are illegitimate. I, you know, you have, there, there comes a time where you have to say like, look, you're not, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not in a position to say who's a Christian and who's not, but these people just strike me as, uh, you know, relatively uncomplicated, mostly very stupid people who are interested in 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 domination and oppression and not in liberation which is what historically christianity has been and we should i think distinguish very sharply between the institutional forms of christianity and primitive christianity you know probably the worst thing that ever happened to christianity was it became a state religion yeah i mean again I grew up in Iowa yeah. and I grew up around, around a lot of evangelical Christians and they, the, the purity of that belief, again, I totally understand what you're saying, but it's just like for so many people, it is this very pure thing, even though it is about fundamentally about domination. Well, and it's so, and, and, and obviously there are people who, you know, it behooves to, to, to sort of push this agenda. Right. Uh, cynically push this agenda but there there are real people you know when you're talking about religion and when you're talking about like you know what's gonna happen after you die and and people you know again <laughs> we're too we're coming to this as strangers basically but that that there's this real purity of belief that's hard to 
reconcile. I think that part of the problem is that, that, um, you know, I will say that 80% of white evangelicals, for instance, uh, who voted in the 2016 and 2020 elections voted for Donald Trump. Right. So I don't, I don't regard those people as, as Christians. Like, I mean, that it just seems like there are certain actions that you can take that exclude you from the, from the, a strict definition. On the other hand, you know, Christianity has always been uh, cited as an excuse to, to oppress others. So has every religion. So has, you know, uh, I mean, look at, you know, as a Christian myself, I don't regard the current forms that I see around me as particularly Christian. Uh, they wouldn't think I was a Christian. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not affiliated with any church. I, I regard many of the creeds as, as, you know, just historical accretions. I, I take a historical view of, of scripture. Uh, but I know evangelical Christians who are not like that. I know evangelical Christians who are very kind, very loving people um, who would never, you know, they might, they might be, they might have views that I, that I view as abhorrent, but they don't act on them in a way that uh, is in blatant contradiction with their faith. So I just think it's a complex question. You can't just sort of be like, okay, evangelicals are like this. Christians no, no, are like no. that, but I mean, you know, the, the Soviet Union spent a lot of time talking about communism while it reinforced some of the worst oppression in history. They clearly weren't communists. I mean, I just think it's a common phenomenon in history. Oh, sure. I guess, you know, the other sort of surprising thing to me reading this is that you know, the idea of a very sudden cataclysmic apocalypse is not shared across uh, other cultures. It's actually a very Western thing. So how do, you know, other cultures' visions of apocalypse contrast with that? Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's a Western thing. I mean, um, Zoroastrianism arose in Persia, ancient Persia. But yeah, it has become um, very... As, as the Eastern religions of Christianity, Islam, uh, etc., have taken hold in the West, it has certainly become a West, Western phenomenon. Um, there, are various, there are various ways of, of conceiving of the cycles. Um, you know, some, some, some uh, indigenous American, Mesoamerican um, cultures view uh, history as a sort of a series of cycles in which the end arrives arrives again and again. Um, uh, you know, you can't really generalize. I don't think some some cultures have no such some cultures have no such uh, um, vision of of, a, of an ultimate end at all. And you know, we should remember that the apocalypse in Christian and and, and Islamic, for instance, um, belief is not actually the end. It's the end of the present age. It's the end of history. But then, then, you know, uh, the eternal life of the kingdom is entered into, or whatever. I mean, are there any visions of the uh, you know of the end of the apocalypse that you feel most drawn or? drawn to or aligned with? 
Well, I, I, I didn't mention Walter Benjamin in this essay because the, uh, his essay on the concept of history would have been too obvious, I think. Um, but it is sort of in the background of my thinking on these matters. I think that, you know, messianic visions, vision, eschatological ideas do teach us something, which is that we, you know, I don't believe in, in, in a strict uh, idea that history is inevitable and um, such things are bound to happen. And I don't believe that there's going to be some final judgment uh, in, a, in, a, in a religious sense either. But I do think that what we can learn from these traditions is that there is a pervasive throughout human history uh, sense that, that the present, that, that, that the current state of things is, there's something wrong with it. There's something wrong about it. And that what we want to bring about in the world cannot be accomplished under the present dispensation. You know, Adorno says wrong life cannot be lived rightly. And um, I think there's a very, uh, you know, it's become a cliche, but I think there's a very deep truth there. Like you can't, you, you cannot accomplish uh, a, a free or just society under the present, whatever you want to call it, system, apparatus, uh, organization, and apocalyptic hopes and fears and illusions and delusions, they, they do have that, that kernel of truth within them that, that, that something needs to change. For, for Benjamin, you know, the, the, this has also become a cliche, but for Benjamin, what we call progress is just this uh, ongoing catastrophe that sort of piles up and piles up. And um, in his allegory, which he draws from Clay, there's an angel watching over all of this and it wants to go back and sort of repair everything that's broken, but it can't because the storm of progress is blowing it uh, into the future. It's powerless to stop it. We have to be that angel is the implication. Yeah. So there's, you know, we have this kind of, we're living through this very kind of pessimistic type of apocalyptic structure, this idea, but as you quite rightly noting that, the there is this appeal there is this tremendous revolutionary potential of the end of the world and i mean you write that you know many ends of the world have come and gone so i guess for someone who uh is just totally black pilled hello <laughs> first of all black pill yes. listener uh, what would you i mean what would you say to that you know that or sort of expand on that idea because it is you know human life will it will always go right. on. Are the, are the whether we are the truly black pilled like listening to a Harper's podcast? Do you think? I, don't... <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> They're like, I want to. I want to hear two women make fun of Zabald for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they cut. Uh, uh, will the editor of this piece cut the line that I had about not wanting to be uh, interviewed by, um, you know? by black-pilled millennials with uh, <laughs> um, with a snarky attitude, you know, who, who, who make um, anti-woke jokes. You know, this, this I, I view the black, I don't want to keep saying black-pilled. I view a kind of um, <laughs> nihilistic pessimism as um, 
not without its its truth you know i mean it's very possible that we're fucked like totally fucked and i actually sort of think so <laughs> but if you assume that we're fucked then 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 you guarantee we will be even if you really believe in your as i probably do in my heart of hearts that there's no hope if you just act like there's no hope you then then you guarantee that there won't be the only way to to actually accomplish anything is to act as if something could be accomplished and whether you believe that like i say in the piece i don't think we're going to get our, our shit together i don't I, I i look around at the world and i don't see much grounds for believing that we're going to abolish what is self-evidently a um a, a self-destructive mode of existence but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try um and it certainly doesn't mean that we should therefore throw up our hands and, you know, go, go live off grid or something. Uh, it depends on what you care about. Do you care about the people who are going to suffer under climate change the most? Do you care about the, the people who are being killed in the streets? And, and history keeps surprising us. You know, we, we, I don't mean to sound optimistic. I'm not optimistic, but I, but I think it would be foolish to just conclude that history is, um, already written, we can rewrite history. Uh, look at what's happening in Iran right now. Who saw, who saw that coming? Look at, look at what happened in 2020. Every now and again, millions of people decide they've had enough and they, and they stop being afraid of the bullets. You touch very briefly in the piece on this concept called systemic chaos. Yeah. Could you elaborate on what that means and how it relates to our own current visions of the end of the world? Well, that is actually a phrase that comes that I borrow from uh, Giovanni Arigi, um, who is a uh, who was, I should say, a world systems uh, uh, a scholar in world systems. Uh, he wrote a very a book that had a profound effect on me um, called "The Long Twentieth uh, Century." He has this idea, uh, this theory that the world system uh, throughout cap he analyzes the capitalism uh, capitalism which he sees as arising in um 15th century venice and genoa uh and and becoming elaborated through various hegemonic cycles so you have um you have the initial capitalist city states of italy uh then the dutch sort of take over then the british and then finally the american mm -hmm. and he he, he he at the time sort of isn't sure whether this was this was in the um, late 20th, early 21st century. He, he isn't sure whether China will replace uh, the United States as a as a, a center of capitalist accumulation. But the idea is that when, when there is transition between hegemonic centers of accumulation, things get gnarly. And if I can use a technical term. And one thing that happens is that accumulation becomes very uh, difficult, uh, and there's an inevitable transition to financialization, which we certainly see here. This was a, a somewhat more abstruse concept until the financial crisis of 2008, when you know the uh, the the world capitalist system almost fell apart, 
And the only way that it did not do so is that states all of a sudden decided they weren't capitalist anymore. They were just going to basically, instead of allowing the free market reign, states were going to intervene in the economy and just pump money into these um, these these firms that were, as it happened, in control of quite a large percentage of the world economy and uh, and prop them up, which is you know classic state capitalism. And now, you know, what did we learn from that? Look at the housing market right now and look at um, the the way that cryptocurrency, which was supposed to be this this um, liberatory end all wars, abolished barriers between. Right, right, right. Uh, Astoundingly, it has turned out to be a boondoggle. Oh, I meant to say about Origi that his what he meant by systemic chaos was um, a, a situation, I think this is actually a direct quote, a situation of total and irremediable lack of organization, you know, and it, and it, and it arises because conflict escalates beyond the threshold um, within which you can sort of have powerful tendencies to combat it, countervailing tendencies, or because some new set of rules and norms of behavior uh, grows out of some older set of rules and norms without displacing it. So there's this, there's this absolutely uh, irreconcilable conflict within society. And as that increases, so does the demand for order, you know? Um, and, and I, I truly think that people have underestimated the extent to which uh, one, the reason that, that we are seeing a resurgence in, terrible uh, uh, ideologies like fascism is that people are people feel this they feel that things are out of control their lives are out of control they keep being told that the economy is fine but their economic lives are are, are miserable uh, they are immiserated and they just they're flailing about for someone who's promising order and of course that order is absolutely um, illusory and in fact only contributes to the ongoing chaos. It's a spiral and it's a feedback loop. And um, eventually what happens is that things become ungovernable. And we already saw this during the pandemic with the supply chain. Like, look how, look how easy it is. I mean, you know, not easy. It took a once in a a century pandemic, but, but we learned that the economy can be very quickly disrupted to a, to a devastating degree. And I think that sort of thing, and, and look what happened to the public health infrastructure. You know, I think that that sort of thing will become more and more common, and that's what systemic chaos is. And eventually, it gets to the point where there simply is only the chaos. You know, your piece draws on a pretty vast range of references, and it's collage-like and kind of collapsing the history of the apocalypse into a, a small space, kind of like a reverse Big Bang. Mm, yeah. So was this was this you know collage-like, reference-rich style a conscious choice, or did it sort of the, the subject matter necessitated it. Well, again, you know, um, I would have to I would have to point to Benjamin uh, because Benjamin's very interesting among uh, Marxists in that he is also concerned with mysticism, with uh, messianism, and he, he he possesses even though I you know he was he was not religious in the sense that you and I would would mean he possesses a religious consciousness, and so my 
sort of parallel almost paths of of uh, interests in the history of religion and in and in religious thought and in uh, what I'll loosely call Marxism, critical theory. You know, it's sort of like someone like Noam Chomsky who has his linguistics and then he has his political um, theory. And people are always asking him, I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to Noam Chomsky, but but as, a, <laughs> as an analogy, people are always asking him what the one has to do with the other. And he always says that, you know, nothing. And for me, it's the opposite. I, I think that religion, my, my interests in religion and Marxism have everything to do with each other. And I'm not talking about Marxism, I want to say in an orthodox sort of Marxist-Leninist sense where the proletariat will rise up. And, and um, you know, I have a, uh, I'm drawing much more on what's called value theory, but I think that would be way too much into the weeds for us. But, but both, both, both currents draw on a fundamental sense that that the way the world is is not the way the world should be a dissatisfaction with um with things and so what raymond williams the marxist uh uh writer raymond williams whom i mentioned uh, whom i draw on in the in the piece calls a structure of feeling is it, it, it's not a structure that that gets within society necessarily that gets necessarily articulated in it very precisely. It can manifest in all in, in many different fields, and that's what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm not so much interested in saying, "Look, the world is ending. Climate change is is happening. Fascism is happening," um, you know, or the world is ending. Like Jesus is coming. Like I'm not interested in arguing that the apocalypse is coming. I'm interested in what the, uh, in in the ideas that that a sense of apocalypse, a, 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 a structure of apocalyptic feeling bring about? How does it manifest in culture, in, in people? Um, you know, I, I think that religion and, and critical theory are perhaps two sides of the same coin, which, which Benjamin seems also to have believed. Obviously, both are full of shibboleths and, and nonsense, but you know, I, it's not a coincidence that, as I say in the piece, that many of the millenarian movements uh, had as their goal the, uh, the same things that, say, the 1917 Russian Revolution had. Um, they, there are commonalities there, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like critical theory or people, you know, sort of social critics writing now, do you feel like they're, they're missing out on something and perhaps, you know, a broader reach, let's say, by avoiding the mystical and avoiding the, that sort of, that intangibleness of, I mean, I'm just thinking of like Jung's interest in, in the, in the, the mystical as well as Benjamin, like it's, 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 do you feel like that, that people should lean into that more? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I quote Paul Boyer, um, who misunderstands Marxism in his uh, in his book on on like thinking about the end times. But he says, you know, radicals should be more interested in, in millenarianism. And he sort of neglects the um, he neglects to mention that they have been. I mean, uh, 
the situationists were very interested in it. But yeah, I think that a lot of critical thought today dismisses religion in the uh, as a sort of simple what you know a way of a way that the masses well it's what it's what mark said you know the 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 way of the masses i find that to be a reductive view um but there are obviously people working in the at the intersection of these of of these forms of thought but they more often i think there's a sort of dismissive attitude um they tend to be more complex than the sort of dim-witted dismissal of religious thought that is characteristic of, uh, of uh, you mentioned Richard Dawkins, um, whose understanding of religion is approximately as complex as that of like my cats. But, um, <laughs> you know, you gotta, there does come a point where there's a hostility toward anyone who, who, has a religious consciousness um, that I find, you know, not only um, not only counterproductive, but sort of um, um, naive, and I think um, not very intelligent. Right. I mean, speaking, you know, you you in the piece you mentioned trying and failing to watch the left behind series oh, no to read it okay, no then or to read yeah. it oh excuse me so you mentioned trying and failing to read the left behind series while researching this piece uh did you what, what other sort of bad apocalyptic art did you encounter you know during the during your research for this oh there's just so much like just if you just just looking at the body of literature that has sprung up around the rapture is amazing um, uh, there, I mentioned the novel 666, which I read in the eighties. I had to look at that again. Um, oh God, what is that author's name? Uh, shit. Uh, Salem Kurban. Um, he has this, he wrote this, this novel called 666. I don't know that people are, are, are reading it. It's out of print. I want to, I, I did find one quote that I just want to mention from the book. So the, the, the main guy whose, whose subtle name is George Omega is a reporter and he's on the airplane and, um, and he witnesses the rapture and, and then he gets called for reasons I, I have no idea uh, by the president whose name is brother Bartholomew. And he wants, he wants George Omega in his inner circle. And the, the novel says, this must've been it. If they were right, then couldn't Brother Bartholomew be the anticipated Antichrist? Or is it just a coincidence that the tail number on his private jet is 666? <laughs> like, I mean, that I don't think that it's going to be that on the nose. If, there, if the Antichrist were real, like, would he really just put the number of the beast on his, on his private jet? <laughs> Let's give him some credit. That but that'd be a baller. Oh yeah, I guess. Like, what are you gonna do? Right. I'm I'm the Antichrist. Right. If the Antichrist <laughs> were someone like Donald Trump, then he would definitely exactly. Well, that I mean six six six. Another thing, uh, in in one of the footnotes in the piece, you note that six 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 is actually most likely a reference to Nero, which is like how again. Let's let's leave aside for the fact that that it sort of worked its way into this you know this this christian idea of the rapture and the and the apocalypse and all of that 
what's going on there? Why Nero? Oh, I don't even remember. I, I read a couple of books about Revelation uh, for the for the piece. Um, and I had studied some of it before. And, uh, you know, many scholars now, not, not everyone thinks that it refers to Nero, but many scholars view it as a, a simply a sort of allegory about the, the current um, persecution of Christians by Rome uh, at the time. The, the, there is a there is a, a system of Hebrew numerology, um, and that is involves using the Hebrew alphabet and assigning uh, numerals to it. And apparently, according to this interpretation, the name Nero Caesar uh, adds up to six six six. There are some. There are some, um, by the way, some uh, fragments of papyrus that in which um of the text of revelation in which the number is 616 um you know whatever i mean these are th this stuff is this stuff is nonsense i don't have a i'm i'm interested in this stuff as sort of uh you know sociologically culturally literarily but i don't I don't attach any significance whatsoever uh, to to any of that stuff. I don't. Revelation just seems to me like some some crazy. It's very interesting that Revelation is included in in uh, among canonical scripture, uh, and it was very much the latest, the last book to be to be so included. And there was a lot of debate about whether to include it. And you know, even Martin Luther didn't really think it should be included. But um, yeah, it does. No, that, that's. It, that's sort of what I'm going back to the beginning. What I was surprised by because it's so it's so hot right now. Oh yeah, well you know, uh, this stuff is 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 irresistible to uh, certain people, certain certain forms of end times thinking. I mean, it gives you a really nice, insane narrative where you know there are there are dragons and there are there are these sort of um, in uh, sinister figures on the horse, the horsemen, and uh, there's a lake of fire, and it's all very nice and neat. And you know, no one took it literally. Uh, the, the the biblical literalism is is a fairly recent phenomenon, uh, at least in the sense that we we know it. Like no one in the early church or the or the medieval church would have thought okay this is a real story it's going to be a dragon and you know god's going to cast jesus is going to come back and and he's going to cast some souls into a actual lake of fire you know it's it's a, it's clearly allegorical but the imagery you can't deny it you know i don't i don't I, it's it's yeah, cool it's it's very interesting so it's it's very well as you say it's very metal yeah it um, is incredibly you know. metal um so in you know you you briefly touch on how your interest in millenarianism manifested for you aesthetically mm -hmm. because you, you were into metal yeah so i guess to to end here are there any bands or particular songs you'd like to put on like a millenarianism playlist well i think um you sort of have to have the number of the beast by iron maiden on there even though it's if you listen to the lyrics it's not actually a song about the apocalypse but just <laughs> just given its um quotation you know its citation at the beginning 
uh, of, of, of revelation and well, yeah, I mean, you got, you have to go with that. It is a, it is a song that, um, was written by uh, Steve Harris, the, the bassist who, who often writes, uh, the Iron Maiden songs. And he's, he, he said later that he, he, wrote it after seeing the movie um he had a nightmare after watching the movie uh omen 2 the sequel to the omen (sighs) and also also apparently he was inspired by robert burns the the scottish poet so what (laughs) oh that's interesting (laughs) but there are a lot of you know there's a lot of there's so much metal that draws on apocalyptic imagery um I'm I'm really into right now uh the band um cattle decapitation who are like like radical vegetarian leftists uh <laughs> and um <laughs> I know and their their album uh Death Atlas came out in 2019 and I got it like right before you know the pandemic was was right around the corner and um it has always sort of been associated with the pandemic for me. It has a, the cover has a, the grim reaper, like holding a burning globe, the the burning earth on his back, like Atlas, uh, you know, hence death Atlas. And uh, Mm. the songs are a little too on the nose uh, for our current state of affairs. There's a, there's a song that's actually called um, uh, bring back the plague. And I can't imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a song called Oops. One Day Closer to the End, the geocide, anthropogenic. So, yeah, um, it's 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 too on the nose, but it but uh, it, it has sort of kept me on track in thinking about the apocalypse. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a that's beautiful. I will listen to that after this because i am very again growing up in the 90s amidst a lot of evangelical christians just seeing everybody just freak out at everything marilyn manson did or even like any of these bands that it's just like this has nothing like that they were just sort of like you know just just everything was satanic and this encoding and like i i mean obviously you see that now with QAnon, where it's like, oh yeah, these people are just hiding in plain sight. You know, mm-hmm. none dare call it conspiracy sort of thinking, but applied to the end times. And it, it's it's you know some of that that seems perhaps even more the desire to make order out of the universe yeah. seems perhaps more universal than the idea that the world is going to end in this very you know the idea of the apocalypse period. no i i grew up in uh, uh i spent junior high and high school in colorado springs which was the um uh obviously in the news today for tragic reasons but it it is uh the home the the home of focus on the family you know uh, a lot of pe- kids i knew at school were in young life and and you know i remember people talking about um I have a friend, my best, do we have enough time for this little anecdote? Yeah, yeah, My yeah. best friend in high school, Mark, uh, he's still, hi, Mark. He's still one of my great friends. He and his, his parents brought him to, and his brothers to church. And they had a um, guest speaker who was one of these people who 
went around in the 80s. Uh, this was very common in the 80s. I, I, I wish, I, I don't think that kids today can appreciate it, uh, the, the sense of satanic panic as it came to be known. And this guy, this, this guy gave a lecture about how rock and roll is, is satanic. And there are these songs that uh, if you play them backwards, they, yes. they, uh, they say things like hail Satan or whatever. And this scared the shit out of my friend and his brothers. You know, they were kids. And one of the songs was Stairway to Heaven. One of the songs was Hotel California. And so my friend uh, has this story that he and his brothers were in the room uh, some some weeks after, some days or weeks after this. And Hotel California, they were playing, they were listening to the, the radio. And Hotel California came on. And um, by the Eagles and my friend's brother looked up and said, this is the song that guy was talking about. And they, and my, <laughs> my friend started crying. <laughs> no! <laughs> he was so worried that listening to the Eagles was going to get you, you know, possessed or whatever. Eddie Money's going to take you straight yeah. to hell. And it would be, I mean, this is where I would like make a joke about how bad the Eagles are, but I kind of like the Eagles, so I won't do it. Yeah, they. That's no, I like one. the Eagles. Yeah, what can I say? Yeah, I even yeah. like Don Haley's solo stuff. Uh, yes. <laughs> See, that's a mark of maturity, not the mark. Of I the think beast. so too. Yes. Like, like, I love Haley, Don Haley. Right, yeah. yeah, building the perfect beast. You know, that was another. Yeah, so, so there's a whole strain of Satanism in um, in in Southern California rock and roll that we have to be very careful of. Absolutely. <laughs> well. To quote Led Zeppelin backwards, oh, sad Satan, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> That's one of the, I always thought that was funny where he's just like, oh, sad Satan. Yes. But thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. So. Thank you for having me, Violet. This was great. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times called Harper's America's Most Interesting Magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only 1697.